Well, I'd ask that you turn to the book of Matthew again this morning. We're actually going to be at the same place we were last week, Matthew chapter 1. And we're also, again, going to look at the genealogy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ one more time. If you were here last Sunday, you may recall we were looking at his genealogy, his family tree. And I'm playing on words a little bit this morning, but last Sunday's message was Jesus's family tree of grace, and we focused on the five women in Jesus's family tree. And we looked at how those women, most of them, probably Mary's the only one that did not have a uh, notable, dark, sinful past. She was a sinner too, but she didn't have a very notable, dark history like some of the other women did. And the point was, if we were making a family tree for the Son of God to come to save people from their sins, we would probably not have picked those women to be in there. But the fact that they are proves to us that God was saying, look, Jesus comes for everybody, every race, every ethnicity, every class in society, no matter if they appear to have a a somewhat decent past or a very dark past, whether they're outcast and thrown to the side, it doesn't matter. Jesus came for everybody. So that was this idea of grace. He came to give mercy to people that didn't deserve it, and that's us, just like those women. This morning, my mind kept going back to and said, I want to look at one more thing in the family tree. This morning, though, I'm going to change the word. Let's think of the word providence. So last week was grace. This week will be providence. I want to focus on how when we look at some events in Jesus's family tree again, They teach us that God truly is a God of providence, not just a God of grace. Let me define providence quickly. Providence has within that word the word provide, P-R-O-V-I-D-E. You can see it there. So it's this idea that God provides. He provides for his people. He provides not just for his people, but it's also this term we use to talk about God's ability to work through human history. God can work through human events from A to Z, and you have B, C, D, all the other letters in between A to Z. Well, God has a supernatural ability to make sure that his intended outcome, all the way to letter Z, the very end, he gets there precisely and perfectly in the way that he wants to. So it's God's ability to kind of govern human events and make things happen according to his will, his plan. Well, when we look at Jesus' genealogy, what I want to point out to you this morning is God's providence is shown all throughout this. And that's a very great thing for you and I. We should rejoice in that. And that's what I hope to communicate to us this morning is what God does here through Jesus' family tree. He's going to make sure by his providence, his supernatural providence, that when the Messiah comes to earth, he perfectly fulfills the criteria to be the Messiah. What I want to point out to you is the Messiah had to fulfill specific criteria. If he didn't, he wasn't eligible to be the Messiah. Jesus could not have just come, for example, through any family. He could only have come through a specific family because only through that family could he fulfill the criteria to even be eligible to be the Messiah. That's what I'll walk you through this morning. But as we do, that's what I want you to have in your mind is when I've talked through this, just keep looking for, look how wonderfully God was working behind the scenes 
for centuries, over even a thousand years, maybe two thousand years, to make sure that at the perfect point in human history, Jesus comes and he's not just here, but he's perfectly fulfilling the criteria to be the Messiah. If he didn't, we couldn't be talking about what we're talking about today. But let's look at this. If you would, please join me in standing out of the respect for reading of God's word. I want to hit the highlights of Matthew chapter 1 that I want to focus on. Let's start in verses 1 through 2. And it reads, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Now skip to verse 6. Jesse the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now I'm skipping to verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And now I'm skipping to the last two, 16 and 17. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that we even have a purpose to sing these Christmas songs of you coming born of the Virgin Mary to die for our sins and bring peace between God and mankind. And Lord, I pray now that you would guide my thoughts to be able to communicate effectively what I really believe you were showing me through this family tree, that your grace is all throughout it, that you came to save all kinds of people, everybody from all kinds of backgrounds and sins. But not only that, Lord, would you help us see this morning just how wonderfully powerful you are to work all things out according to a very specific plan to make sure that Jesus was even eligible to be our Messiah and pay for our sins. And in your son's name I pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. What we're going to do is follow how Matthew set up this genealogy. I didn't share this with you last week because it wasn't pertinent to the message, but it kind of is today. And I want to say this, Matthew does not line by line call out every ancestor in Jesus' genealogy. He skips a lot. And if you notice what I read at the end, he says 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 from David to Babylon. And four, that's actually not literally the case. Matthew is grouping them together to make, I would say, a theological point. Now, it's, it's true what he says, but I just don't want you to read this and think, oh, these are literally the the fathers of all these. No, some of these are great-grandfathers of the person he mentions and, and on down the line because Matthew's trying to group these for a specific purpose. And he does it like this. He's trying to show us something here. He starts with Abraham. Luke, for example, goes all the way back to Adam to show Jesus is a real human. He has a real human family. Matthew doesn't do that. There's a reason. He goes back to Abraham. Then he moves from Abraham to David. And that's his point. We were talking about Abraham and David, and then he moves from David to the deportation in Babylon, from that to Christ. That's his point. He's actually kind of preaching through this genealogy. So he's not literally being historical line by line with every generation. He's skipping a lot, actually, to get to a point. And the, the flow that he has is what I'm going to share with you this morning for our purposes, too. So we're going to focus on why does he bring up Abraham? Why does he bring up David? What do they have to do with any of this? That's the point of this, is he's trying to show us, look, Jesus fulfilled some very specific criteria to even be eligible to be the Messiah. 
Let me make this point to start with. He says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. My first point is just to point this out to you. Jesus, the Christ. So I put that in parentheses on your screen, the. Because Matthew here says Jesus Christ, the son of David, and on and on it goes. His first emphasis, though, for us to see is who we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus, but it's not just any Jesus. It's Jesus the Christ. Now, that word Christ is from a Greek word, Christos. That is the Greek version of the Hebrew word for Messiah. So when we say Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ, it's the same thing. It's just two different words to talk about the same title. But I want to point this out because some people, I, I thought this as a kid, to be honest, I thought Christ was his last name. It's not. Christ is his title. We actually don't know his last name. Jewish genealogies, to be frank, didn't care about your last name. They cared about your first name and the city you were from and the tribe you came from. So his last name is not Christ. His last name is unknown. His title is Christ. And Matthew says, I'm talking to you about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. How did he get here? How did he physically get to this earth through what family? It had to be a specific family. That word Christ and Messiah, it means God's anointed one. The sent one come to do God's carry out God's plan and his promises to save people from their sins. The Jews were looking for this Messiah, the awaited one, the expected one, they would call him. And Matthew's writing to Jews, I believe, predominantly to say he's here, guys. Here is the Christ. Here's the long awaited Jewish Messiah. And let me explain to you how he comes down to us through this line of people that God providentially guided to make sure it was perfectly the way it needed to be. He begins then with saying that he's the son of David, and I'm going to skip to that next phrase, the son of Abraham. So let's look at that point. The Messiah had to fulfill the promise to Abraham. That's the first criteria that he had to. And I want to emphasize that this morning. He had to. There were certain things that had to be checked off the list there, or he couldn't even be eligible to be our Savior. The first one, Matthew points out, is he had to fulfill the promises made to Abraham over 2,000 years before Jesus ever came on the scene. Well, what are those things? Let me read some of them to you. It says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, here's God talks to this man named Abraham, and his name was originally Abram. So in Genesis 12, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and in whom... Him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I want to draw your attention to the very last phrase. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. God told this man, Abram, who at that time was very elderly, past the years of bearing children, specifically really his wife was, but him and his wife were childless. And yet God says to him, if you'll just follow me and obey me, here's what I'll do for you. I'll give you so many children that nations come from you. Not just one nation, plural, nations. But that's not really the heart of the promise. The heart of the promise is that last phrase. God said, but in you, Abraham, all the families, all the nations, all people of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham didn't fully know what was happening, but somehow, some way, God was communicating to him from our perspective over 4,000 years ago, but before Jesus came on the scene over 2,000 years He was saying to that man, Abraham, I'll do something through you, through your offspring, that will cause all people of the earth to be blessed by God. Something 
was going to happen that was so wonderful Abram couldn't comprehend. Well, we know looking back, God was promising through Abram the Messiah, the Christ, would come. And in him, he would die for sins and offer salvation to all the families of the earth. But Abram didn't know that yet, but that's the promise. And he repeats it in Genesis 15. He says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But still, Abram hasn't has a child yet. So he kind of responds back to the Lord. Well, Lord God, what will you give me? Because I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Now notice what God said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. Again, he's childless, but God keeps repeating this promise to him, You'll have so many offspring, they're like the uncountable stars in the heavens. The uncountable sea on the sand shore is how many you'll have. But again, I want to keep repeating this. The point was the Messiah was coming. That's why Abraham is important. Through his lineage, Jesus, the Christ, would get here and he would save people from their sins and bless all families of the earth. Now that means this. The Messiah, who let's pretend we don't know it's Jesus yet. Whoever the Messiah would be, he had to be Jewish, number one. Had to come from Abraham, the Jew. That is a rule. He had to fit that criteria. He couldn't come from outside the family of Abraham. He had to come from inside the family of Abraham. Or else the promise of Abraham would have never been fulfilled and God would have been false and a liar. And we know that's not true. That can't happen. So God must then, for over 2,000 years, guide human events to make sure that that nomad Abram had a child who had a child who had a child and on down for 2,000 years eventually provides the window of opportunity for Jesus to be born, specifically in that family. That's the first criteria he had to fulfill. So when Jesus comes on the scene, Matthew now here points to this and says, look guys, he's the son of Abraham. Not literally the son, but the descendant of Abraham. The family that Jesus comes in through to this planet Earth makes him eligible to be called the son of Abraham, which means he fits that first criteria. He is a Jew, not just any Jew. He specifically fulfills that promise made to Abram that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Well, here's the second one, and this one gets a lot more tricky. Not only did the Messiah have to be a Jew from Abraham, he had to be eligible to reign on David's throne. The Messiah had to reign on David's throne. Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, but not only that. He's also the rightful king to reign on the throne of David forever and ever. You may read through the New Testament and you'll find instances of that where it calls Jesus not just the Savior, but he's also called the King, the King of Kings. You'll, you'll see that phrase sometimes throughout the Bible. Well, Jesus didn't just come to save from sins. He came to claim a throne and to sit on it and to reign forever and ever. Not just any throne. It had to be David's throne, King David. Let me explain that to you. That's why Matthew points out in verse 1, Jesus Christ, the son of David. He had to fit those two criteria, the son of Abraham and now the son of David. Because God also made promises to David as well that had to be fulfilled. If they weren't fulfilled, then this stuff wouldn't be happening that we're talking about today. In Matthew 1.6, if you'll look, Matthew records that Jesse, the father of David, the king, again, he points out the king to make this point, that someone had to come from King David and fulfill 
the promises made to him to have a son on the throne forever and ever. David was the father of Solomon by the wife Uriah. Well, let me read to you the promise God made to David. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it reads like this. God says to David, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now notice he says to him, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. It continues down in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, meaning when you die, David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's the key. David was promised Solomon would be next and he would reign on the throne after David. But there's very specific wording here that makes this tricky. And I'll explain why it's tricky in a minute. But pay attention to the part forever. God didn't say temporarily for 20 years, for three generations. He said forever. David was promised a son to sit on the throne forever. It goes on in 2 Samuel 7:16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Again, God keeps stressing this. David, this will never end. What I do through your family will cause a descendant of David to sit on the throne forever and ever and ever. Your throne shall be established forever. Then we fast forward to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, and this is the famous one we all read in churches at Christmas time. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So we're talking about the coming Messiah here, but notice this wording. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now notice the next verse, of the increase of his government. Now if you've often wondered, why does it say government? It's actually referring back to that promise made to David. You could substitute the word kingdom, a, a type of governmental reign. When the Messiah comes, Isaiah was saying, he will pick up where David left off, basically, and he will reign over the kingdom. And then it says there'll be no stopping to his governmental increase, his powerful reign increasing everywhere. Isaiah specifically says that there will be no end to the peace he brings and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and again forevermore. So Isaiah picks up long after God spoke to David through Samuel and repeats this and says, he's coming. And when he gets here, he will fulfill what God promised to David so long ago, that he will reign on the throne and he will establish it forever and ever and ever, because that's what God promised David. So then again, when the Messiah gets here, we're pretending we don't know it's Jesus yet. He has to come from Abraham and he has to come from David to even be legally eligible to sit on the throne. Well, what happens is Joseph's family tree Matthew says he does, in fact, come through the lineage of David. Well, that's good news, because for him to be eligible to reign on the throne, he has to. That's common sense now, right? But there's a, a problem that I'll get to now. Joseph has a familial right, a legal right, to reign on the throne of David. So then Jesus comes and he's sort of adopted into Joseph's family, because remember, he's not his earthly father. More on that in a moment. But 
Joseph is the one Matthew's tracking here and says, I'm getting my way to Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. Not biological, but the earthly adopted father of Jesus. And so if you look at Matthew's chapter 1, that's what he's trying to show us, is you have Abraham to David, from David to the Babylonian captivity, down to Joseph, then Jesus. So Joseph sits in this lineage of a rightful way to reign on David's throne. But there's a problem here. The problem comes in Matthew 1, verse 12. And it reads like this. The next link in the chain of David's genealogy, he says, after the deportation to Babylon, now we have this gentleman here mentioned, good luck, Mindy, Jeconiah, was the father of Shealtiel. The issue is this gentleman, Jeconiah. He's a problem. The problem with Jeconiah is back, way back, when the kings of Israel were reigning on the thrones and down through time, if you read in the book of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you will see an unfortunate cycle. There will be a good king that reigns over Israel, does a lot of good, very faithful. He dies. And unfortunately, his goodness may have not gotten passed on to his son. And then his son reigns in his place. And then it may say something like, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he leads the whole nation into sin and evil, and God brings judgment. It's a cycle. It's a vicious cycle. Good king, bad king, good king, bad king. Over and over and over. Until a point comes when God says, that's enough. We're not doing this anymore. So what he warns them about over and over through the prophets, he says, I'm going to send you guys a more powerful army, a more powerful nation. They will overthrow you. They will overpower you. They will overthrow the king's. They'll even burn down the temple if we have to go that far, and they'll deport you from your homeland to a foreign country, and there you will serve them until you die. He warned them over and over, don't keep living in sin or judgment is coming. Well, they didn't listen. So God sent the Babylonian kingdom in to Israel. You may have heard of King Nebuchadnezzar. He came in and did just what God warned. He overthrew Israel. He overthrew the, the kings. All of that stuff. Even so far, God even let him ransack and destroy the temple. See, the Jews thought God would never let something like that happen. They thought the temple's too precious to the Lord. He'd never let it be destroyed. So I think the Jews thought at the end of the day they could sin as much as they want, and God still would sort of have a boundary line that even he wouldn't cross. And God proved them wrong and said, No, I'll even let my own temple be destroyed if that's what it comes to. And he did. Well, what happened, though, for our purposes here this morning, I need you to catch is this. God, from that point on, no more king reigned in Israel. From the mention of Jeconiah and Shealtiel, there's no more king that sits on the throne in Israel. They stopped. Because ever since that point in history, Israel was under the power of another nation. The Babylonians, then the Greeks, then the Romans, and on and on it goes. Now, they're a democracy to this present day. But from that point on, there has never been a king sit in Israel. Well, the problem is, how can God then fulfill what he promised David? God promised him a never ceasing of someone to reign on the throne. And yet, no one has reigned on the throne since that guy, Jeconiah. Here's another issue. God also pronounced a curse on Jeconiah. Let me read this to you. In Jeremiah 22, verse 24 God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah and said this, As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, now Coniah is short for Jeconiah, so we're talking about the same guy. So Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, though he were the signet ring on my right hand, I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those 
of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So here's what's happening real quick. God was speaking through Jeremiah to Jeconiah to say this. Jeconiah was so evil, so wicked, that God chose him to be the stopping point for the kings to reign. He said, no more. They're too wicked. And he said to Jeconiah through Jeremiah, he's so wicked, God even said, if he were like the signet ring on my right hand, I would rip that ring off and throw it away. Well, what God was doing was saying something like this. Jeconiah, you are no more, and your kingly lineage will be no more. In fact, he says in verse 30, very specifically, Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless. And he means Jeconiah. A man who shall not succeed in his days. Now, Jeconiah had children, so he doesn't mean literally childless. But what he does mean is this. None of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So there was a curse pronounced on Jeconiah and his offspring. God said very plainly, none of them can reign on the throne of Israel ever again. The issue before us then is that presents a problem because Joseph, guess what family he comes from? This one. That's what Matthew says because he's tracing this lineage from Abraham to David to the deportation in Babylon and mentions Jeconiah and Sheltiel. Then he traces from then on down to Joseph. So the problem would be, how can God fulfill his promises to David that he would never fail to have some offspring sit on his throne and reign forever and ever and ever. And yet you have a curse pronounced on one of those same offspring saying they will never have a son sit on the throne again. How can then Joseph sit on the throne? Well, he can't. Joseph, by earthly standards, per this curse I just read to you, would not be able to sit on the throne of David and reign. Well, let me add to our issue then. How can Jesus then be called the king of the Jews if he comes from Joseph? Would that not mean that Jesus himself falls under the curse of Jeconiah and therefore can't reign on the throne? Here's where I'm trying to wrap this message to a point now. I went through all that background to make this clear, I hope. God, for all those thousands of years in his wisdom, was still working to make everything work out according to plan. For example, why is it that Jesus had to be born of a virgin? Why is it Jesus, when the Messiah gets here, he could not have had a biological father? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The first one we talk about all the time. He had to be sinless. If Jesus was born of both earthly mother and earthly father, he would have inherited the sinful nature from the curse of Adam and Eve. He himself would have been a sinner. So that's not possible. He has to come from a virgin. Literally, he cannot have a biological father. But the second reason is this right here that we're talking about this morning. If Jesus physically, biologically came from Joseph, he would fall under the curse of Jeconiah. He would not be able to reign on the throne of David. And all of God's promises would fall flat. But we know that can't happen. So here's what happened. Because Jesus was born of Mary, but not biologically from Joseph, that meant Jesus sort of bypasses the curse of Jeconiah. Jesus is legally adopted by Joseph, but he is not biologically Joseph's son. So what happened is Jesus is 
legally eligible to sit on the throne of David and fulfill the promise, but he is not physically under the curse of Jeconiah. Let me give you an example of how this works. I personally, and many of you know, I'm adopted. I was adopted when I was a baby by Gary Burden and Loretta Burden. They could not have children physically, so they adopted me. Throughout time, my the Burden family, my last name, they were told by doctors that they literally have a heart attack gene in the family. My dad had three or four uncles die of massive heart attacks on the spot due to a genetic heart defect. My grandfather had many heart issues. On and on down the line it goes. I bear their last name, but I, to my knowledge, do not bear their heart defect because I do not biologically come through them. I am legally brought into that family and carry the name. I take that to be something similar to what God did with Jesus. If he had physically come through Joseph, he would fall under the curse of Jeconiah and could not reign on the throne. He does not, though. He comes physically through Mary, and he is legally adopted through Joseph into the family. So Jesus has a legal right to reign on the throne, yet he physically, biologically, does not come through Jeconiah that I read to you. He bypasses that. All of that history to make our case this morning that I want you to leave with is this. If I hope it didn't confuse you, but I just hope you can walk away at least saying this. What wonderful power our God has to even bypass human curses that he himself gave out due to wickedness and sin and yet still fulfill promises he made thousands of years before and work things out through human history, through his wisdom and his providence, so that when Jesus come on the scene on earth, he's born into the precisely perfect family to both fulfill being a son of Abraham, so he's a Jew and fulfills that promise, and he is able to reign on David's throne through the legal rights of Joseph. He can sit on David's throne forever and ever. He can reign and fulfill the promises that God made to David so long ago. That is why Matthew says, I believe in verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, but notice it says Joseph is the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus is born. Matthew is being specific to say Jesus came from Mary. He did not come from Joseph. But in their day, it worked much like today. If you've ever gone through an adoption or you know about it, you understand how this works. Someone can be adopted, but they are for all practical purposes, according to the law, no different than just as if you biologically birthed that child. It is all the same. The same worked in Joseph's day when Jesus was born. He did not physically come from him, but per the law's standards, he would have had all the rights that Joseph would have had, it, it, just as if he had been birthed through him physically. So again, it's how God wonderfully worked out this clever plan for thousands of years to make sure Jesus fulfilled those criteria. Luke 3.23 says, when he talks about Jesus' genealogy, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Notice this phrase, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph. Luke also throws in that phrase, as was supposed, to make this point. In the Greek language, that was a verb to mean you assume something to be the case, but it is not, in fact, the case. So Luke was saying everybody assumed Jesus 
was Joseph's biological son, but he was not. He was his adoptive legal son. So again, God providentially, meaning he supervised, he worked through human events to make sure that when our Savior come, he actually fit the criteria. He's a Jew. He fulfills what he was promised to Abraham. He fulfills what was promised to David. He can sit on the throne. And I want to make this point to end out our message. If you look at how God providentially guided all those things for thousands and thousands of years to work it out perfectly so Jesus is eligible to be our Savior, I want you to understand God still works that way today in your life and mine. Jesus had to be a perfect Messiah, but he also had to fit those criteria to be the Messiah, son of Abraham, son of David. But God's providence hasn't stopped. It still works today. God still provides for you in ways that you may not see yet. God often, when you read the Bible, works behind the scenes. But then, all of a sudden, things happen, and we look back and say, now I see how God was providing for me all that time. But in the moment, I didn't see it, maybe. Just like these people, it took Matthew to point out, look how God was working for all these centuries to make sure Jesus got here in a precise way. God provides and God guides. That's what providence means. He provides for you, and he guides your life behind the scenes. He guides us to be more like Jesus, but he also guides us and gives us gifts to serve him. God's given you these blessings and these gifts, and and again, we don't realize it, but he's providentially guiding us. I want to read you Romans 8.28. You may know it by heart. We say it all the time. Romans 8.28 is sort of a definition of providence. Paul says, We know that for those who love God, all things, all things, meaning all events in your life, all things in human history that has occurred to you, and I want to point out good or bad, Paul says they work together for good. Now what Paul did not say that sometimes gets misquoted, some people quote this a little too fast and they'll say, look, uh, Paul said that all things are good in the life of a Christian. No, Paul said all things work out to become used for a good to paraphrase it my way. So that means bad circumstances can come into your life. They're not good. And you may not realize it now, and you may not realize it till you get to heaven. But behind the scenes, God was doing something with that. And Paul says what God was doing is getting to a point, an objective, where even that bad thing that came into your life will be used for something good in God's eternal plan. You may not see it, and it hurts in the moment. You may, you may think, I, this thing that's happened to me is a tragedy. Nothing good can come from it. Well, you and I may not see the way, but God does. That's providence at work. And he still works in our lives that way. And I'm trying to make that connection. That's what he was doing through the family tree of Jesus. And he does it in our lives today still. He works things through circumstances and events to get us exactly where he wants us. Just like he got Jesus right where he wanted him and needed him to be. I think the questions before us as we end out are this. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? Have you trusted in Him to pay for your sins because you have your faith in Him, you knowing that He came to be born of that virgin to, to die so that our penalty for sin is paid for by Him? Have you trusted in that? If you have, then for us as children of God, the next question would be, but are we trusting in God's providence every single day? to guide our lives, 
That's hard to do. I mean, many of you, now that I've been here at the church for a little while, I'm starting to get to know some of the, the medical situations, and many of them are bad. But at my mind keeps thinking, even being told, hey, you have terminal cancer. Hey, you have this going on. And that's terrible. But we have to trust that somehow, some way, God is behind the scenes working all things out to an intended purpose for a good that we don't understand. He was doing it through Jesus, through his family tree, and he does it in our lives today as well. I pray you're trusting in God's providence to guide your life from now and forevermore until we see him in heaven. I want to have a word of prayer. Let Bruce and the team come. And as I pray, that is my prayer that you know the Savior as your personal Savior, but that you trust, you walk out here today trusting, saying, I may not understand what happens in my life, but I will trust God's providence. He's working all things out, just like he did through Jesus' family tree. And praise God that he's wise enough to let Jesus come and fulfill those requirements in such a perfect way so we can have a Savior. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been able to. If you would, stand with me, and we'll pray. Lord, I am so thankful that you are so wise beyond our human comprehension that despite human sinfulness and failures for thousands of years that could have derailed the plan for the Savior to get here, you providentially worked through those things to make sure that he did. And, and despite such wickedness, even from the guy we talked about, Jeconiah, that you could still ensure Jesus was eligible to fulfill all of these promises that you made. He is our perfect Savior, our Messiah, the King of Kings to reign on the throne of David. And we know in Revelation that one day we will reign with him and be in your very presence. I pray that everyone here knows Jesus personally as their Savior. If they don't, would they come down here and talk to me? And we'll be sure that they do. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and dying for us and being that king we have looked forward to seeing one day. In your name we pray. Amen.